Good morning. It's good to be with you again when I was here last time. Of course, missing a number of you young people, so good to see you. I've spoken to Jathan a couple times, and I'm grateful for the elders and Pastor Jathan allowing me to come back. I'm covering for a friend who booked to be here originally when the need was presented, but he forgot about his son's wedding, so... And so he has a reception to go to that he's doing this afternoon. So uh, anyway, that's my pleasure, though, um, my joy to be with you, grateful for it. I want to say I, I, I really am grateful and a recipient here of the worship that's taking place and the, the reverence, certainly, and the fellowship and the kindness that's been shown to me. And... Um, you guys are getting the word. I've been listening to a few of the messages uh, online, and I just want to tell you, you have a treasure there, and suggest one way that that could be used as a tool for the gospel. I, you, perhaps like myself, know people who still aren't braving the doors of the church for whatever reason. A lot of people blame it all on COVID. Well, we stopped going at COVID. Um, those, those recordings can be a good way to introduce the way that the word is preached here to people. And I have to tell you, I think you will find people with an appetite for it. I'll just very quickly, I, I do this in a, a few different places um, as I have opportunity over the course of the year. And one place, it's a parachurch organization. I had a gentleman just a couple weeks ago, so it's not a church, and I'm not bad-mouthing anything. I'm talking about a man at a parachurch organization who came up to me and said this, and I say this not as a boast, but about the content of what is preached from this pulpit Sunday in and Sunday out, and what I want to do the same with the word today, but he said, when you speak, it sounds like a Bible study. And I, I've heard that a couple times before from people like him, and I've thought, well, I don't want it to sound like a Bible study. I want it to sound like preaching. And I asked him to elaborate, and he said, well, others come up and they give a pep talk or a speech that gets us all fired up. And this guy, he doesn't know, I mean, how much this comment resonates with me. And then he says, then it just turns into nothing, but you're actually opening up the word and telling us what it says. So we may take that for granted based on what I'm hearing of your pastor. So let's not take that for granted because many simply don't get that. And so when they hear somebody come in and do it, it's completely novel. Is this preaching? I had no idea. Next time I go to this parachurch organization, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preach on the power of the gospel in 116 of Romans. The power of the gospel because so many churches are seeking for power in other places. But I trust and I see and I know that you believe along with me that there's no reason to be ashamed of the gospel for therein is the power of Christ to change lives. So that's my hope this morning as we open up the word. You've been in Matthew. It's very interesting to me how my passage in James chapter 2 might even lead into what Jathan would speak on next week. We'll see. But would you turn to James chapter 2, please? James chapter 2. My title is Mercy Triumphs Over Judgment. And I want us to see the way it is illustrated in the parable 
of the Good Samaritan, the connection between mercy and love. The way love shows mercy to the least of these, which I believe is the passage, if the Lord works it out like this, because this was not the plan that Pastor Jathan will be looking at next week. We'll see. If not, it'll come the next week. Mercy is very much connected with love. And James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13 makes that clear. Let's pray first real quickly. Father, I thank you for, again, the opportunity to open your word, that you've given us the word in print, that we can read and understand, and more importantly, that you've granted us eyes to see the truth of who Christ is and how it is that his love and mercy and wisdom are fleshed out in the word in a way that is prescribed for us to follow. So I pray all those things at once, Father, that your spirit would illumine hearts tonight, including mine, as I dig in once more, and that you would illumine our eyes to see not only the truth, but to recognize the places of our heart that need exposure to that truth in a new way as we continue to plumb the depths of your word. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand one more time as we read verses 1 to 13 of James chapter 2. The apostle says, My brothers, Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you? And the ones who drag you into court, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the eternal word of God. You may be seated. Mercy triumphs over judgment. It's my title, and it's the proverb at the end of this little section, which stands together, stands as uh, a, a solid, complete portion of James' teaching. I'm giving the whole piece all together. It's a little much for a Sunday morning, but we'll do it in a timely way. Know that you can return to it and dig in where you need 
and where the Lord leads. But mercy triumphs over judgment, and that's where we're headed. That is the end and the summary of everything that's about to be said. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Some of you, if you grew up in the valley, I wouldn't be surprised. There's at least one or two others here, maybe, where you know someone who worked for a fire crew. I grew up in Fresno, and so as you know, they're starting to take off now. I was on call as a firefighter during the summers, during college. I needed to make money for university. My mom was hoping I would be able to get work, but she had a hard time praying for fire, fires, you know what I mean? So she prayed for work. Inevitably, fires come. And you got in these hand crews, and there are three tools that we use primarily, along with the Sawyers using saws. The rest of us use Pulaski's, McLeod's, and shovels. And these tools designed to turn boys to men, turn you to steel, really can't put out a fire. They just divide a line between green and burn, and you cut that line around the fire in order to contain the fire. But again... They just don't work to put out a fire. What you really need to put out a fire, you already know, is water. Water puts out fire permanently, effectively, efficiently. And I want that to be our picture of what judgment undergoes at the face of mercy. How mercy quenches judgment, how mercy triumphs over judgment, the same way water puts out a fire. That's the best illustration I could think of as we dive into this passage. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's look at James, and my proposition for you this morning will be, I've got a four-part charge for you as I see this passage. James gives four aspects or four ways in which he charges us to love our neighbors as ourselves. A four-part charge to show mercy and love and show love to your neighbor as yourself. There's four parts to it. He gives, and I'll go over this later too, but he gives an exhortation that commands and then presents an illustration that clarifies. And again, I'll fill this in. I see there's blank spots there in your notes, but we'll go over this. And then he lays out in-depth instruction that convicts and then summarizes with a proclamation that crystallizes. And that is that last verse, I think, which helps us understand in a nutshell everything that James has to say to us in this section. But first off, an introduction into the book of James, since this is a one-off and the one time we'll be here. James, the author, is the younger half-brother of our Lord Jesus. He was known as James the Just, James the Righteous, and he is an exhorter. He does so with fervor. He urges Christians, this is what he was doing in the early church, to practical action. And I've just given you, if you start to feel this with me, it's because we're on the same page as far as wanting to hear the gospel and wanting to understand um, how it is that Christ enables us to trust and obey. But if you start to get this feeling that, boy, this is a heavy book, let me tell you, this little book has 59 imperatives, 59 commands, and that is the highest number of commands 
per total number of words of any letter in the New Testament, any book in the New Testament. So we have a high dose of commands. And when somebody starts outlining commands to you or giving you exhortation after exhortation, there can be a weight that's filled. I want to tell you, I understand that. The book of James is command after command after command. In chapter 1, you've got be joyful in trials. He tells us not to be deceived about where God's good gifts come from. We're charged to be doers of the word. We're to show our faith by our works. We're to pray. We're not to curse others. We're to treat the poor justly. We're not to swear. We're not to plan for the future presumptuously. It goes on and on. And our passage here on not showing impartiality and not harboring evil motives is yet another imperative. And I want to challenge you this way, and this is going to be that weight that we feel that I think the Word of God intends to do for us. It might be one of those messages that you loved it, but there are parts of it you didn't love so much, but you needed it. That's how this book has been for me. The book is Test of Faith, after test of faith, after test of faith. It is an opportunity for us to examine ourselves under the light of God's word to see if we are truly in the faith. Not to question your salvation, but to examine the content of your understanding of who Christ is and where you are in relation to Christ. These are tests of faith. James is the first book written in the New Testament canon. It's written, it's penned prior to the Gospels. And this is fascinating. So James isn't pulling from any other document outside of the Old Testament. He knows the Old Testament thoroughly. In fact, James is called the New Testament Proverbs. It's New Testament wisdom literature. We've got a lot of uh, proverbial thoughts here and a lot of wisdom. In fact, I think that's the centerpiece. I don't want to go off too much, but where he's seeking wisdom from above. James is filled with Christ's wisdom, his, his wise sayings, but they weren't written. He's got it in his head. They're called the logia of Christ, the sayings of Christ. And so you might recognize, even places where I didn't, and as you go through the book, portions that, my goodness, that sounds just like the Sermon on the Mount, and it does. That sounds just like Jesus' talk with these Pharisees where he told them, he warned them of their judgment, and indeed it does. This is where this book takes us because James knew Jesus for longer than the other disciples. They were with him for three years. James grew up with him. And so he passes this wisdom along. I want to also tell you that James, you might prefers something, and and I'm kind of speaking personally, like Romans, where it goes into depth about faith and hope and love, but James, in that practicality, sticks to what he knows the early church needs, and you've got many new converts and many new Jewish converts who want to know, how are we supposed to live? And so he knows they're in dire need of practical answers on day-to-day issues. This is one of the books that I've commended to students And I I teach junior high. It's great for junior highers. It's great for high schoolers. It's great for you because it's so practical. I had a student in the past that used to, he'd gained a reputation on campus for being wise, literally. 
And he came up and told me, he goes, all I do is quote James. It's weird. He goes, I don't really tell them. They know I'm a Christian, but I just, I've got all my, they're from James and people think I'm wise. And he, you know, anyway, it's true. James pours out that wisdom for us and it's in this four-part charge. So we begin with the exhortation. He gives an exhortation that commands. This is the imperative. Let's look at the text, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. This key word here, brothers, this is the tip-off that you've got a new section, and James does this many times as he starts a new section of instruction. He begins with this, brothers, and it's not exclusive to men. It's inclusive men and women. It speaks to siblings of the same mother, and really, in context, it talks to Christians, men and women and children, all of us. So he's speaking to all of us. He says, my brothers, that is, those of us that are following Christ, men and women, show no partiality. And there's the command. And that is, do not have an attitude of favoritism. Do not show personal favoritism. And the word there literally means do not be, it's a respecter of persons. As believers today, we're not to be respecters of persons. And that is we're not to show favoritism based on position, rank, popularity, anything outward, including what we're going to see right here, which is clothes and wealth and personal appearance. The call to be impartial here has its roots in the OT law. You don't have to turn there. We are going to look at one of these later, but Leviticus 19.15, this is in James' head, says, God tells the Israelites, you shall not be partial to the poor, defer to the great, but in righteous, to the great, yes, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. And then Deuteronomy 1.17, you shall not be partial in your judgment, You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone. James is familiar with this, so this is his exhortation, clearly rooted in the Old Testament and rooted in the words of Christ in his mind and how Christ treated others, show no partiality. And help us understand, to clarify, he gives this illustration. In verses 2 to 7, this is a bit of a lengthy illustration and it's got multiple parts but as I said happened to say in my last message too I like illustrations that help me see what the point of the passage is help me see visually what's happening so we'll look at verses two to four first it's one long sentence it's one long rhetorical question Looking at the text, he says, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves? and become judges with evil thoughts. So here's the picture. Two men enter, and one is literally gold-fingered, is the term there. He's gold-fingered. And in bright, showy clothing, 
The word there is bright. It's showy. It draws attention. And the other, in stark contrast, is dirty and shabby in an old ratty clothing. Talk about showing respect to people based on things like their clothes is what he's saying. A very simple message. A very simple illustration to see how easy it is to show partiality based on something as ridiculous as clothes. I, I had this come home to me years ago. I, I, I happen to be an, a bit of an NHL fan. That's hockey. Did you guys know that? Yeah, anyway, maybe not. But um, I was invited to an NFL game years ago. And I tell you, I, you couldn't watch the game. It was ridiculous what was going on all around me were gold-fingered people. It was just such a show. I mentioned in case you're ever in those settings where you see and were attracted by clothing or people are aiming to attract with clothing, it was just so over the top. But sometimes it's more subtle as to, to trap us. Sometimes it's more subtle as to catch our attention not in a gaudy way, but in a persuasive way so that we're tempted to show partiality. Or it says in verse 3, to speak to pay special attention or to give special respect or regard is what he's saying. What happens is we make distinctions and this speaks of making divisions between people based on what we see. In this case, between the rich and the poor. You can't see the heart though and that's the charge here. We can't see the heart. You can only see the outside. So if you insist on making judgments, you inevitably become, he tells us, judges with evil thoughts. I want us to recognize this process. Because we can't see the heart, if we jump the gun on decisions and judgments where we can't see the truth for sure and can't see past the outside, we run the risk or we become judges with evil thoughts. And that judges with evil thoughts, the idea in context here is judges with evil motives. We'll talk about these evil motives more in just a moment. But this partiality is precisely the way the world operates. James exhorts those who in verse 1 hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ to act differently. We want to give preferential treatment to those who have. And we tend to possibly, in our minds, approach people who have not in a different way. And as those who hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, we're not to do that because Jesus became poor for us. That's clearly James' picture here as those who hold the faith in Christ. He elaborates on this and reflects on this little illustration in 2 to 4 in more rhetorical questions in 4 to 7. Let's follow along. Listen, he says, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? He asked them then to consider how God approaches the poor. Consider it in your minds. And the answer is verse 5. He's chosen many of the poor to be rich in faith. And he's asked the question again. Isn't it often in verse 6 
that the rich, not the poor, are the ones who oppress you and take you to court? And everybody knows that it's true. But the temptation for believers is to judge based on appearances. Now, certainly this discrimination is part of what James wants to talk about. But I want to tell you before we move on that this is a dangerous illustration if we let it subsume the whole message of our, our topic here, okay? And here's what I mean. I was assigned this passage, and I was disappointed because I thought, I, I don't have a problem with poor people. I, I, do, I, I can handle that. I don't look at them differently. I try not to. You know, I can always learn something. But I was disappointed of all the passages. Frankly, I would have preferred the wisdom passage in chapter 3 or taming the tongue would be good for me. All of this. And I got this passage, and I realized the illustration is just that. It's an illustration. And it's not just about seating in a church even though that's the illustration. Seating in a synagogue, or a, it's actually a court proceeding, many commentators would say. But we might apply it to seating in an assembly like this. And all the sermons, one of the things you can do as you prepare a message is at the end, you can watch other sermons and see how other pastors are approaching it. And I have to tell you, online, where I looked, most of them focus on discrimination. And that is a buzzword in our culture today. I get it. But at the heart of the warning is the warning not to be judges with evil thoughts or evil motives. Because the person who allows the rich person to come up close does it for some selfish reason, is what James would indicate. Maybe to get something in return, to avoid any trouble. Don't put the rich person in the back. Give him a preferential seat, and that way we'll play it safe. That might also be why we put somebody who is poor in the back or in a corner for the sake of appearances. So that's not what this is all about. It's about a broader topic, which I've already introduced and we're going to dive into. But clearly, we are not to discriminate based on appearances. That's what we're not to do. What we're to do, we'll get to the heart of that, is in verse 8. What we're to do instead of showing partiality is we're to dig deeper and see what this is about. And that's the instruction, the in-depth instruction that convicts in verse 8. And I use that term convict because it is exactly where I went when I looked at this. Beginning in verse 8, he says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture. And here's the royal law. James gets it from Leviticus 19.18 and Matthew 22. Here it is. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, that is, again, if you make judgments based on the, the external, you are committing sin and are convicted by that law as transgressors. So I'll just ask you, and I want to make sure everybody sees it. Do you see how this works? Do you see the sin James views the sin of favoritism and partiality as a violation of the command to love your neighbor as yourself. This was the connection that was really important for me. Those who assume the role of judge and start judging situations by externals tend 
and this is in the text, I believe, naturally assume their own innocence, or at least the tendency is to downplay our own sin and magnify the sin of others, especially when it's committed against me. That's who he's talking to now, the one who thinks he can judge and avoid judgment himself. Look at verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. What he's saying is you want to point a finger at someone else's sin as if it's greater than your own, reconsider because you are a lawbreaker too. That's the point of this verse there. Any and every sin is rebellion against the lawgiver, and that makes us guilty of breaking his law. And he's very similar to what Christ would say as he elevates the requirement to satisfy the righteous requirements of the law of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount to a point where it's impossible. We have to lean on Christ. But what he's saying here is you can't, raise certain laws above others and say, I'm going to obey the big ones and disregard the smaller or lighter ones, like the royal law. By the way, it's called the royal law because it is the big law. It's the second half of love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and then love your neighbor as yourself. That is the biggest law. So if we judge others on their sin and fail to show love, then we have a problem And we're transgressors as well. So how does one do that? How does one not engage in partiality? How does one truly show love to their neighbor? Here's the proclamation. The proclamation that crystallized it for me. And we'll qualify this as we look at what it means the relationship of mercy with judgment. James gives a summary like a proclamation that makes it clear what we're to do. We've got the exhortation not to engage in partiality. We've got the illustration of what partiality looks like and this broader instruction to show that what we're really talking about is how to love your neighbor no matter who they are. And now this short proclamation. In verse 12, it starts. It's got three parts. He says so in verse 12. And it works like therefore, in conclusion. Speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. What's the law of liberty? A song we sing at our church um, pictures it this way. You guys have probably sung this song. He rose that we would be free indeed, free from every plan of darkness, free to live and free to love. Death is dead and Christ is risen. It was finished upon that cross. This is the law of liberty. We read about it in Romans 8.1. For there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. That's the law of liberty. Romans 8. That's how our judgment is put out like a fire. 
James tells us to keep this truth in mind when we speak and act and interact with others. Keep in mind how God has dealt with us. And then the second part of this proclamation, it's a memorable and important warning. He says, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. This means those who are truly under the law of liberty and have freedom in Christ will show mercy. The one who shows no mercy should expect no mercy. I mean, a question to ask, and I was asking myself, is am I known as a man of mercy? Am I known as a merciful individual by my wife, by my children, by my neighbors, by strangers, by people I pass on the road? And then this last part. The reality is mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the boast of those who have been transformed in Christ and received his merciful grace. It means that those who have received God's mercy need not fear his judgment. And that is the theological truth. God's mercy has permanently put out the flames of the judgment that you and I deserve. That's the, th- the truth here. And the practical response, which James is zeroed in on because these believers in the early church need practical ground hitting, rolling truth that they can proceed with in a culture that is increasingly hostile to Christ. They need to know how to respond. And James says, if that truth is true in you, that God has put out the judgment of the flames that you deserve, then he says your judgment on others must be put out too. And he says this because our judgment, people who can't see the heart, is prone to partiality. Our judgment is prone to making decisions based on externals. Our judgment misreads motives because you can't see the heart of man. You needed mercy, he says, now show mercy. Now don't misunderstand, this isn't a train wreck happening in front of you, okay? This doesn't mean you excuse sin. Okay, you know that's true. It doesn't mean we gloss over sin. I've thought about plenty of applications with this where I would still, if the opportunity to show mercy to someone meant that I have to expose my children to certain things, well, I have a call to protect my children from certain things. I don't know if that makes sense, but as I thought about applications, I would have to um, think about protecting my children, protecting my wife, protecting the church from certain influences. That's important. But sometimes the merciful thing is to point out sin. The same way, I don't know if you have these people in your life and they're, they're good people to have. People who show love by telling you the building's on fire. There were speakers that would come up to Heartland that were like that. Eric Hovind is one of them. He would come up, and he's a guy that would, is ready to tell people the building is on fire. And it sounds so harsh and judgmental, but what it is is merciful. Because if the building is on fire, 
what do you need to do? Get out. It's the most merciful thing to do. And so we live in a world where, of course, the building is on fire, but there are absolutely no signs as far as plenty of people think. There's no signs that there's coming judgment. The world has gone on like this for years, for generations, for centuries, millennia. It's just going to keep going on like this. No. One day there will be a point when God separates the godly in Christ from the ungodly without Christ. And so it is an act of love and mercy to warn people of this. Let's turn to Deuteronomy 117. Just real quick, this would be one, because this is in his mind. Deuteronomy 117. Because there's a place in our judgment that we can't go. And that's the heart. And that's where we're tempted to make decisions. So when we're not sure, we don't know what's going on. I didn't read this whole verse before. He says in Deuteronomy 1.17, this is to the leaders of Israel and applies to us today, I believe. You shall not be partial in your judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. And the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me and I will hear it. It's not a stretch to say this is where prayer comes into play. You see, if there's something we're not sure about, I have a friend, I, I would tell him, a mentor of mine, 15 years older. He's got all girls, though I've got all boys. I think there are similarities, but anyway, and I had a concern about my boys going over to a certain house, and he said, don't do it. Don't allow it to happen. Just wait. Be patient. I go, well, I don't want to be. He goes, no, just wait. Pray about it. And it was such wisdom. If you don't have a good feeling about it, now I don't want it to start and end at a feeling, but don't second guess that feeling, especially with something as grave as my children. And he told me to be patient and to pray about those things. I think that's the thing here. When we're not able to make a wise judgment, bring the case that's too hard for you to the Lord, and he'll hear it. Deuteronomy 117. Pray and ask God for wisdom. And in the meantime, we should show mercy. And mercy, and this is what that point, if we had more time, we could illustrate, but I think you already know it. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, mercy has an eye for the needs of others. It has an eye for other people's needs. There's a great contrast to look at the difference between mercy and judgment, and it's clearly on the judgmental side would be the Pharisees. They accused Jesus of eating with tax collectors and sinners. You might have heard some people, they'll say, oh yeah, Jesus hung out with tax collectors and sinners. We've got to be careful about that one because that was an accusation from the Pharisees looking to judge him. They accused the disciples of breaking the Sabbath by picking kernels of grain to eat. And of them, Jesus said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe, but you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. And to them, Jesus gives this warning, woe to you. 
no mercy because they showed no mercy. They had no eye for the needs of the people. They looked out at the people and thought, they're filthy. Jesus looked with mercy and said, they're like sheep without a shepherd. Now note, there is a judgment there, and he's right. They need Christ. We don't want to be stained by the world. We want to guard ourselves from the influence of the world. But to look at their situation as one of great need is, I think, the natural inclination of those who have been forgiven much and who understand mercy. I think very clearly we all understand mercy because it's the reason we're here. The reason we're here is because God has shown mercy to us. That's the example of judgment. On the, another example would be James, the author of this letter. You may know that James did not initially believe in his, his brother. <laughs> I mean, you can imagine growing up with your older brother, your parents could literally say, it's possible they said it, you know, why can't you be like your brother? I mean, that would be a very difficult situation probably to grow up in the household of a perfect sibling, And so James did not initially believe in Jesus. He's unbelieving in the Gospels. In John 7, 5, it says, not even Christ's brothers believed in him. And in Mark 3, 21, Mary and his siblings, his family heard what Jesus was doing in Mark 3, 21, and they went out to seize him, to take charge of him, for they were saying he's out of his mind. That's a judgment that James had. They thought Jesus was crazy, but James should have known better. The fire of his fault-finding judgment was finally put out. If not earlier, at 1 Corinthians 15, 7, where it says the resurrected Jesus appeared to the apostle James and the rest of the apostles. And that was very probably the point when love mercifully covered over his multitude of sins. When God's mercy put out the fire of the judgment that he deserved. And James came to his senses. He understood that through Christ, mercy has triumphed over judgment. That is the truth, and it is the call for us, beloved. It's the call that we would go out and be recognized as people of mercy. And I think we have an uphill battle because they, the lost just, they don't look at it that way. They don't look at church buildings that way. They don't look at our gathering Sunday morning that way. But you and I know this place is all about mercy and grace, isn't it? It is. And yet they would think that we're plotting something when really what we want is that they would come to Christ too. And we want to praise the Father in heaven who has saved us. And it's to him we give the glory. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word and the the truth that James the Apostle gives. This forerunner to the other writings, Lord, where um, we get uh, a deeper understanding of salvation, but out the gate you chose to give very practical truth 
if there's a heaviness to this, Father, I pray that we would rest in the truth that mercy triumphs over judgment because of what Christ has accomplished on the cross, because of what Christ did for us in our stead. And because of that theological truth, we have a response which is world-changing and soul-saving. And I pray that you'd give us wisdom how to have mercy triumph over our tendency to partiality and our proneness to jump to conclusions sometimes, Father, that we would keep in mind all that you've forgiven us of so that we might reach out to the lost and do that in a way as, as you lead, Father, and open doors. We thank you for the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.